at Heather and I's wedding, we wanted to honor marriage. So we did that common practice that a lot of weddings do. We had all the couples come out and start to dance. And then we said, if you've been married shorter than five years, sit down. If you've been married shorter than 10 years, sit down. Then 20, then 30, then 40. And it kept climbing until we get started getting into couples who had been married three times longer than I had been alive. And I think if we had the whole church here this morning, we weren't in, uh, in COVID, and we had all of you stand and do that, there would be people here who have been married twice my age or longer. And we wanted to do that on our wedding day as a way to honor those who have fought through all the pressures that come down on marriage and still make it work. And we need to do this. We need to honor marriage in our society. We need to honor marriage most especially in the churches. The divorce rate has hovered around 50% for like 60 years. It doesn't seem to matter how many self-help books we print or how many therapists go into business. The problems with our marriages continue. I hear stories about how it used to be uncommon for kids to have divorced parents. I don't know that world. I've been entire, in entire classrooms where I'm the only one who didn't have divorced parents. In fact, here's an astonishing thing that you would hardly believe in this world anymore. Heather and I don't have siblings, parents, or grandparents who have been divorced. What a wild thing anymore. And that should be honored. We need to teach, encourage, and celebrate those kinds of things. Instead, we avoid the topic of relationships in, the, in church, and it's an attempt to, to be sensitive because marriage is a sore point for many in the church. We have numerous victims of this epidemic of heartbreak and psychological damage scattered throughout our churches. Lots of hurt people. But just because it's hard to reconcile what we have personally experienced with the truth that God's Word shows us doesn't mean we should avoid the topic. Let's do the opposite. Let's teach Christian marriage. And let's hold it up in the eyes of the people and lift it up before the throne of God in prayer. Now, marriage is a very complex subject. And today, we're only going to get into a tiny sliver of what Christian marriage is and what makes it successful. Those questions we should be asking... If, you've, if you're married and, and you do any kind of Bible study or if you value the Word of God, is, is what does the Bible say? Is there a secret? What are couples supposed to do to make it work? You know, the world has its opinions. The world has its ideas. I heard a man being interviewed on TV once, and he and his wife were celebrating their 65th wedding anniversary. And the reporter asked him just that. What's the secret to a long marriage? And the man's face turned all intensely serious, and he said the secret was two simple words. Yes, dear. Is that the secret to a happy marriage? Maybe not. Or maybe you remember this example. I've read about it in old history books from the 1980s. One of the largest television audiences in history gathered around their sets on July 29, 1981 to witness one of the most glamorous storybook weddings of all time. Prince Charles of Wales and Lady Diana were going to be married in an elaborate ceremony. It was watched by 750 million people worldwide. 75 technicians, 21 cameras. Maybe this was the secret. 
A royal prince weds a lovely lady, grand cathedral surrounded by hundreds of adoring subjects. What more could a woman want? That couple was the envy of millions, young, rich, handsome, powerful. A marriage made in heaven, right? Well, we, we know better now. When the cameras turned off and the guests went home, there was stories after stories of what a nightmare marriage it was. Unfaithfulness. The couple growing farther and farther apart. Stories of brokenness, unhappiness, anger. You know this. The Bible teaches this. It takes more than a prince and a lovely lady and a storybook palace to make a happy marriage. Let's see what the Bible has to say. We're going to read from Ephesians chapter 5, and this morning we're in verses 21 through 32. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as the radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they fed for it and cared for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. In our text that we just read, Paul gives us a picture of a Christian marriage and some tremendous advice. Let's, as we look at it again, let's remember where Paul is coming from. If you remember from the last few weeks in our teaching of Ephesians, since chapter 4, Paul has been discussing what it means to live worthy of our call as Christians. We're to live worthy of the name of Christ by preserving the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace among fellow Christians. We're to live worthy of the name of Christ by being different from the world around us. Last week we talked about part of what being different from the world means is that in the church there should be no hint of sexual immorality. There was a warning by Paul that if we do not do what the Spirit is directing us to do, if we do not allow ourselves to be patterned after Christ, we will see destroyed lives, destroyed relationships, and a destroyed world. We're still talking about the practical living, but we're trans transitioning once again into a different gear. The subject matters that we've talked about before, they still run through each and every verse, but it is a different subject matter. Verse 21 Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Part of what it means to walk worthy of Christ is there has to be widespread, uninhibited submission in the Christian community, one to another. Now take note, this is under the heading of marital submission in your modern printings of Bibles, but that is some random header someone put in. This command is not merely for people in marriages. But it's a command to all Christians. The relationship between couples and all the specifics come later. This is for the church. Why do we submit to one another? It is out of reverence for Christ. 
If you want to revere Christ, one of the practical everythings you can do is to submit to one another. It's pretty simple. So why is such a simple command with such an important core, simple reason for doing so such a hard thing for people to do, especially in America today? I think every time I talk about submission, your eyes about roll out of your heads. And I'll tell you why. It violates the dream. The ultimate dream of all human beings in their flesh is to have fewer people tell them what to do. I want to be my own boss, reduce the size of government, live without debtors, do the job I want, answer to no one but myself, set my own schedule. I mean, the real dream surrounding money or power or good looks is to have the freedom to do what you want without people telling you no, or potentially getting away with something you shouldn't. And I'm sorry to tell you this, if you haven't realized it already, but people are just really mature toddlers. We don't like the word no. It's a core truth of humanity. We, we hate people telling us what to do. And a core truth of Christianity is that submission is a crucial ingredient in living like Christ and maintaining Christ-centered relationships. And we've messed it up. Look at how badly we've messed it up even in the church. Jesus said to be servants. Jesus said the last will be first. And then we went and got all hierarchical and elevated and power-seeking in the church. Baptists are probably the least hierarchical because we believe in the priesthood of the believer that we all have access to Jesus and we all have an equal vote in church businesses. But it's much different in most of the denominations they have stack after stack of nothing less than Christian nobility. Notice how this teaching pushes against what Paul is teaching in this passage. Paul is not saying that some Christians are to submit to some other Christians. No, he's saying all Christians are to, are to submit to each other. I'm not on a higher level. Pastors, deacons, Christian ed, trustees... We're not on a higher level. The Bible says we are supposed to mutually submit to one another. And if we do that, this thing we call church will work. Paul then begins to get into uh, the specific subset of relationships that he's wanting to get into, teaching to not all believers in a church, but specifically to those who are in marriage relationships. Submission is an important uh, concept, idea, practice in Christian marriages, and, and as well as in the church. Listen to what Paul says in the next verses. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the, as the church submits to Christ, so all wives should submit to their husbands in everything. All right. That concludes the sermon. I think we know what we must do going forward. Pretty clear. Let's close in prayer. I'm just kidding. This passage is one of those that has been causing trouble in the church for 2,000 years. It's been used as a club to beat people down in a faith that is about setting people free. So before we get into breaking down what this passage says, let's remind ourselves of some good, solid biblical truths. We have just been commanded as the body of believers to submit one to another. It is mutual. 
We know that in many places the Bible teaches the truth that there is not male or female in Christ, but that we are all on equal footing in Christ. The message of Jesus is one that is incredibly liberating, especially when you consider the era those commands were being written in. So let's break down this passage. And let's get one thing out of the way first. There is a godly, biblically mandated order of authority in marriages. People who try to expand this to all male-female relationships are wrong. People who try to remove this order of authority in marriages are wrong. Paul says that wives should submit to their husbands in all things. But what does he mean? Well, submission in marriage is not reticence. It's not servanthood, inferiority, docility, or degradation. Submission is not a sign of weakness. Remember, submission is what we've all been called to, and it was a word that was used to describe Christ. It's not a dirty word. In fact, the Bible presents submission in marriage as a sign of strength, not of weakness. It requires a, a great deal of personal strength of character to submit, especially knowing some of the men that you all are married to. Submission in a marriage is merely a, a spirit of respect a wife has toward her husband. It is an attitude intended to help her and her husband to live a, a life of contentment and peace. It's a type of support and empowerment that allows the husband to thrive in his Christian position and Christian walk. It's a type of service, not just to her family, but to God, for it is what God has commanded. It's a living embodiment of the attitude and actions Jesus had to the Father. The word that's used here, hypothesitai, it carries the meaning of someone who joins a mission voluntarily. It conveys this idea that you admire a commander or a captain so much that you have chosen to follow his lead into battle because you see the value in where he is taking you. And I want you to, to understand something. When Paul is writing this, women had become little more than property. Throughout most of that culture, especially in the places where traditional Judaism had taken root, women were viewed as inferior and had relatively little freedom. In most places in the ancient world, women were minimally educated. They could not be witnesses in a court of law. They could not adopt children or make a contract. They could not own property or inherit property. A respectable woman was never out in public alone. They were expected to walk behind their husband without speaking. They were expected, upon penalty of death, to remain faithful to their husbands. But there was an obvious double standard that was given to the men. Women were used in marriage contracts, political contracts, and business deals. They were basically tradable goods. Property. A toy. And we've been influenced greatly by our current culture and all our current understanding of gender relationships, but we need to reassert the truth of Genesis that women were expected to be co-workers with men, that they were helpers, that they were participants in the relationship. And Paul is reaffirming that. We are soldiers together for Christ, man and wife. That was a huge deal. And it was a sharp reprimand to all husbands who were living according to the old way and did not recognize that their wives were their right hands. And that's the attitude that a wife should come towards their marriage. If the man in your life isn't the person that you respect and appreciate as that type of leader, as your commander in the spiritual world, then Paul says, 
there's a very blessed single life that could await you. You don't have to be married if you're single. If you don't have that kind of man in your life, the one that you would follow, the one that you say, this person leads in the way I respect, there's a, there's a very blessed life being a single person. Let's continue on, because the passage does, does not stop there. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church. For we are members of his body. If you haven't seen the length here, the instructions for the husbands is much more extensive. Husbands are told that they are supposed to be just like Christ. They are supposed to love their wife just as Christ loved the church, sacrificially, in holiness, protecting her and keeping her pure. For Paul to exhort men to love their wives as Christ loved the church was a profoundly countercultural message. He's essentially saying, be willing to lay down your life for your wife. Put her needs above your own. Live your life sacrificially for her. Love her like you love your own body. Paul says it. We take care of our bodies. We protect them. We care for them. We try not to take our health for granted. It's the same way. You can't take your wife for granted either. She is a part of you. It is a single body. That's what Paul is saying here. For this reason, verse 31, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. What does it mean for the two to become one flesh? That's what it says all the way back at the beginning of Genesis, and we're reminded about that concept throughout Scripture. It is exactly as Paul says later, what a profound mystery. Two people literally become one in some important ways. People in their marriages need to stop thinking about it as two separate individuals and, and start thinking more along the lines as one spiritual entity, so tight and together that no wedge could drive them apart. Two partners sharing a lifetime together. And it's hard to do this. It's hard to start thinking about us and we in every situation instead of I and me. But the Bible says we are one flesh. Continuing on, this is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Again, Paul reminds us for the basis for all this submission talk, it's rooted in what Christ did for us. Wives, he says, the way you submit to your husband is patterned after how the, the church submits to Christ. If your relationship with your husband was the only indicator to someone else about how the church should follow Christ, what idea would they get? What would they think? What are you teaching the world about how the church understands, and follows Christ. Husbands, the Bible says that the way you love your wife is to be patterned after how Christ loved the church. 
If your relationship with your wife was the only picture someone had of how much Jesus loves the church, what would they see? Would your love for your wife teach the word world about how much God loves us? It's something to think about. You might want to, you know, you might have the tendency to want to get all selfish about your relationship. This is my marriage, this is my relationship, but in the Christian walk, in the church, the Bible makes it clear that it's still not just about you. You're a living example of, of Christ and of God's love for us. You know, many of you grew up in a time, I said this earlier, many of you grew up in a time when, when traditional marriage was still the norm in our culture, when you saw very few divorces and, and most children had both parents. And I'm sorry to remind you of this, but that living example of God's relationship and love for the church are now a very rare countercultural one. It's rare. It's just not happening. And it's a sad thing. It's a heartbreaking reality. Can you imagine Jesus proclaiming his love for the church and then giving up when things get tough? Can you imagine a God who was worried about his own desires first? Can you imagine God saying, well, you were really good, but there's someone else better now? Can you imagine our Father as abusive or lazy or domineering? Can you imagine Christ as rebellious and disobedient? We should not be teaching the world these things through our own relationships, but we are. Church, when you are together, you and your spouse together, you are a living testament to who God is. It's going to be hard to act in a way that reflects God perfectly. It's impossible. But we need to be doing it. And I want, to, I want to talk to the husbands and wives here who are really struggling in your marriage. I want to encourage you to press close to God. Pray for strength and protection. Don't give up. Swallow your pride. Be willing to work on whatever you have. God loves it when you persevere and you press into your marriage. God loves it when he lives out what he's been teaching you. There's no arena better than in the, the marriage relationship. If you're one of the, the many in the church who has been affected by divorce, I hope you continue to heal and find peace and find comfort that you understand that this was not what God wanted for you or what he planned for you, and that you understand his true love better because of what you have experienced. To everyone else, I, to, to everyone, I hope you understand the importance of having all our human relationships built on the foundation of Christ. If you're dating, it better be centered in Christ. If you have a friendship, it better be centered in Christ. Every interaction you have with your family, your spouse, your parents, your children, your siblings, it better exude Christ. Make sure you're submitting, loving, and supporting one another, that you're cheering each other on in your marriages and in your families, and that this body of believers continues to bloom with the fruit that God wants here. 
These relationships are more than just what you're doing with your own life. They are living testaments to what Jesus has done in your life and how you choose to live your relationships out. Let your light shine among men so that they may see your good works and praise your Father in heaven. And together, maybe we can be more than just a strong church, but that each core family unit within us can be strong and holy, mutually submitting to one another in a way that pleases the Father. That's my hope, and that's my prayer. Amen.